California at a friend's house and uh, it's stuck with me over all these years. We're going to be talking about the Beatles today in our sort of a roundabout way and uh, what they did to American rock and roll music um, and uh, I'm delighted to have as my guest uh, over the telephone author Elijah Wald. Uh, Elijah, hello, how are you? Fine, thanks a lot for having me back on. Elijah's in Albuquerque, New Mexico, even as we speak. Uh, he's moving east from Los Angeles, um, and uh, we arranged for him to have this uh, phone available for him to do the show with me today uh, for his new book, How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll, an alternative history of American popular music published by Oxford University Press. Uh, Elijah is a musician, a writer, an historian whose books include Escaping the Delta, Robert Johnson and the Invention of the Blues, which came out in 2004 and was the last book that I think we talked about, uh, mm -hmm. Elijah. Uh, Narco Corrida, uh, published in 2002 about the modern Mexican ballads of drug trafficking. The Mayor of McDougal Street with Dave Van Ronk, published in 2006. And uh, Global Minstrels, Voices of World Music, also published in 2006. He's currently teaching at UCLA and a contributor to the Los Angeles Times. Or has that changed, Elijah? I guess that's changed. I'm out of town now. Um, and you know what's happening to the newspaper business. Yes, I do. Uh, and it's devastating, isn't it? Um, so are you looking for a job as you try to mend your way across country? Or are you thinking about another book? Uh, you know, I'm always looking for a job, and I'm always thinking about another <laughs> book. But frankly, what I'm mostly doing right now is, is, is just sort of being relieved to be out of the library after three years working on this one. Well, this, this book um, certainly shows the evidence of all that hard work. It's an amazing compilation of material about music in this country from the 20s and before through current day, um, especially through the 70s with the Beatles. Um, and it's just full of stories and facts and all kinds of things that you have been picking uh, uh, up from gosh knows how many sources for, for those three years you were working on it. But it, it's, it's a very readable uh, and very informative book, again titled How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll. An Alternative History of American Popular Music, uh, Oxford University Press. Um, before we start the book, I want to just talk briefly about your connection to KPFA, which goes back family-wise for years. Your uncle uh, is Alex Hoffman, uh, your mother's brother. Right. And Alex lived for years with KPFA legend Elsa Knight Thompson, who hired me here in 1967. So I've known Alex ever since then. I think you were probably, were you even born then? In 19, what, what year did you 67. say? 67. Yeah. You were born in 59, weren't you? I was born in 59. Okay, so uh, I've known him almost as long as you have anyway. Um, yeah. And um, he, uh, Alex was an attorney uh, who marched with Cesar Chavez uh, in the 60s in the Valley and uh, um, hung out around KPFA and fought for wonderful causes for many, many years. Um, and um, that brings us to another thing I'll just want to mention, and that is how your family has influenced your work. Uh, you point out that uh, you wouldn't be the same person you are. You wouldn't have chosen a lot of the things that you had if it weren't for your family. And I'm going to read a paragraph from the introduction here. It says, uh, obviously, as I survey the history of popular music, I am just as affected by my own time, gender, race, and class as the writers of the 1930s or the 1960s were by theirs with my own prejudices and experiences. I am sure I would have written this book very differently before hip-hop, 
or if I were not a guitarist or the son of two middle-class Jewish college professors with strong left-wing politics, one of them born in 1906 and the other an Austrian refugee, classical pianist and prominent feminist, or if I hadn't spent years playing bar gigs or writing for a newspaper or so on and so forth. I, I love the way you sort of mention your parents as uh, middle-class Jewish college professors. It's worth mentioning that your father won the Nobel Prize in Physics, George Wald. Uh, in biology and medicine. I'm sorry. I've I blown it. I thought for years it was <laughs> It's been too long since I really thought about, uh, about uh, all of that. But in any case, um, that certainly adds an... Uh, a touch of something special to your your family and your well the funny thing about it all is of course my father's presence in this book is the fact that he knew every single pop hit from around 1920 um he actually had a little uh sort of song and dance act with a friend of his that they used to do around the ymhas in brooklyn (laughs) and so my father's major effect on this book was that the first music I ever knew was, you know, the Sheik of Araby and Lena was the Queen of Palestina and when Francis dances with me. That's wonderful. Um, again, I'll mention for those of you just tuning by, we're talking with Elijah Wald about his book, How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll. You, you point out in the introduction that... Um, there's a difference between the role that critics and historians play, and you very much want to take on the role of an historian in this book. Uh, talk about those differences, because you're also a critic. Sure. No, I've, I've been a, sure I am a critic, and you know the fact is we all are critics in one way or another. And basically, the point I was making in the introduction is that the history of American popular music has almost all been written by people who love jazz or who love rock and roll or who love blues or other what what we now call roots music and who hate all of the sort of bland mainstream pop that we see as as destroying that stuff or or just overwhelming that stuff and the result is that if you want to find out how pop music evolved over the course of the 20th century, it's awfully hard um, by reading books on pop music because someone like the the one who was sort of the, the push for for me in this book, Paul Whiteman, who was, I would argue, the Beatles of the 1920s in terms of his overarching influence on all the music of that period, um, all I had ever heard about Paul Whiteman before I started working on this was he tried to turn jazz into this sappy, white, non-swinging pop music, and thank God he failed. And nothing about the effect he had on people like, for example, Duke Ellington. You know, it's, uh, and, and so my intention on this one was, as, as I guess I say in the introduction, I sort of feel like, not sort of, I feel like critical, the critic's job is to define what music we still should care about. And I think that's completely valuable, completely valid, and a book of jazz history that tells us why the music that is great got to be that way is a completely good way to write it. But all the books on jazz are that way. And after a while, you forget that all of that music wouldn't have happened the way it did without a lot of music that today just sounds dated or schlocky or silly or like the music from old cartoons and so what i was trying to do in this book was go back and and figure out how the music sounded in its own time and how it evolved over the course of the 20th century yeah well you know playing devil's advocate for just a moment uh, it's i think uh, the fans uh sometimes turn a 
jaundiced eye towards critics and think, what does he know? I like this stuff. You know, it, it reaches me. And that, mm-hmm. that is more important than somebody else's opinion about it. Um, and certainly the, the parallel you were drawing between Paul Whiteman and the Beatles, uh, uh, holds up. Uh, they were both criticized for being bland or, or mel- melting down things and taking other people's work and turning it into their own and so forth. Nevertheless, they reached more people, uh, you know, <laughs> than anybody else. And so there's something to be said for that. Uh, sure. And in his own time, um, you know, people forget that whatever one may say against Paul Whiteman, he was the first person to make the classical music establishment and the academic establishment take jazz seriously. And one can hate him, but but that's still, you know, we still talk about jazz. A lot of us uh, talk about jazz as sort of an equivalent of American classical music. And that starts with Whiteman. Yeah. You also see your role, as I understand it, uh, to connect all the various strands in the various genres yes. to show how they all affect each other. Yeah. I think that's a very interesting and worthwhile thing to do. And again, it makes for a lot of good stories in this book, folks. Again, the title is How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll, an alternative history of American popular music published by Oxford University Press. Um, it's just true that we everybody stands on the shoulders of the people that preceded them if they if they're aware of their work. Uh, that's always going to be true, um, but it's not always easy to see. Well, and I, I think you know we have a problem because you go into the record store and the music is divided in these different sections. You know, rock and jazz and so forth, and someone like Tom Waits, who really was kind of a Hoagie Carmichael sort of songwriter and piano player, um, you found him in the rock section, which makes no sense from anything except marketing terms. But people begin thinking of these people that way, and after a while, nobody talks about him like a jazz or a pop guy. Everybody talks about him as if he did rock, but which he's virtually never done in his life. And I think there are a lot of artists like that who... You know, it's, it, it would be much more helpful to think of them simply in terms of what they do and not have to make those categories. Yeah. Cataloging is the problem in, in some way. Uh, they've got to fit into a niche in order to fit into a place on the shelf somewhere. And right. I mean, the, the flip side of that is if all the records in the record store were just arranged alphabetically, right. it would be pretty hard to work with. Or by color or something. Yeah, no, it would be. Um well, let's just get right to it here. Um, how did the Beatles destroy rock and roll? To the quick answer. Um, well, the quick answer is, of course, they didn't. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, the quick answer is rock and roll is still with us in various forms. Um, you know, one of the things I say is that the Beatles fans tend to agree with me completely. They just say the same sentence as the Beatles transformed rock and roll into a more mature and complex music that we call rock. Um, I mean, everybody tends to agree that the Beatles had a major, major effect that completely transformed um, white uh, rock and roll. The major negative effect they had, and I don't think this was their fault, it, it simply happened because of who they were and when they happened, was that after the Beatles, rock and roll did become completely a white form. And, you know, the the day the Beatles arrived in the United States uh, was probably the high point 
of racial overlap in the pop charts in American history. And within a year or two of the Beatles' arrival, uh, rock meant white music and black music was called soul. And I think that that really has had a profoundly, um, for me personally, a negative effect on American popular music and American culture. Yeah. Speaking to that very point, you, uh, at the beginning of Chapter 17, uh, say you want a revolution, it's titled. Uh, you have two quotes, one from Time magazine in 1967. The Beatles are leading an evolution in which the best of current post-rock sounds are becoming something that pop music has never before been before, an art form. And below that, you quote Mitch Miller, I'm sick and tired of British-accented youths ripping off black American artists and because they're white, being accepted by the American audience. You know, part of me wants to read that and think, come on, you know, they're different. They don't have to be compared to each other, and they certainly they evolve one from the other, but but why be critical? You know, I still have that reaction. To and I agree stuff. with you. I mean, honestly, that quote is there because the person saying it is Mitch Miller, which just makes my head want to explode. <laughs> right. I mean, a lot of younger listeners probably don't remember Mitch Miller, but Mitch Miller is famous as the man who, I mean, the way he's almost always categorized in histories is he was the guy who was creating the schlock white pop music that we were rescued from by Elvis Presley and rock and roll. So it's just so utterly bizarre to find him saying that. Yeah. Um, we're talking with Elijah Wald. The name of the book is How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll and an Alternative History of American Popular Music from Oxford University Press, um, and uh, Elijah's on the road, headed east. Uh, he's talking to us from Albuquerque, New Mexico today. Y you point out in the book that your first recorded musical memory, and this is not music because, as you pointed out, your parents made music in the house, and you were very aware of music that way, but your first recorded musical memory was the Beatles album you got on your sixth birthday. Yeah. And you also, Beatles. Yeah, and you also point out that kids today are still dancing to the Beatles 40 years after they existed, which would be the same as if you'd been dancing to Whiteman's music in the 60s and you didn't do that. And what's, what's the difference here? Um, that's, a, that's a really good question, and I don't have an easy answer for it. One of the answers, of course, is that in the 1960s, um, we really, I think everybody felt like youth was profoundly changing the world. And there was a real feeling of division between us and our parents in a way that I don't think kids today feel the same division between themselves and their parents. And in fact, one of the things that the Beatles said, one of the things Ringo Starr, I, I found a quote from him that I found sort of interesting, that they were much more into older song forms because they didn't hate their parents because they'd all gone through World War II together. Uh -huh. And it's true. I mean, Paul McCartney always talks nostalgically about his father's love for Paul Whiteman and the Gershwins in a way that I think, say, Bob Dylan would never talk nostalgically about his parents' tastes. I think that was a difference that the English had. Um, I think another difference is the thing I was talking about, that uh, it's a little, not a little, it's, it's an oversimplification to say that white rock and roll um, or white rock hasn't advanced much since the 60s, but it hasn't advanced certainly comparably to black music. And as a result, I mean, if you're listening to white rock bands these days, they don't 
a lot of them sound all that different from the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Um, it's not like if we'd listened to Paul Whiteman in the 60s, which sounded unlike anything we cared about. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I might want to argue that the Beatles were also somehow touched something deeper uh, that has lasted longer. Uh, I'm not quite sure why I want to say that, except that I'm such a huge fan, and they brought me through a period in my life uh, and made me think about music in a whole new way. And I'm, I'm sure that's true of many people, uh, such as myself and, and you. I mean, you know, they they really did uh, transform music. Uh, and and you talk in the book also about how new technologies have changed music. And that, course, of course, is also a huge part of it. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. Uh, they changed it for good and for bad. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that any new technology, um, unless one is a Luddite or, or completely blind to the damages it causes, um, all new technologies create winners and losers. And really, I, I didn't think of my book this way when I was writing it, but after I'd finished it, I realized that it begins with the beginning of recording and really sort of ends at the moment where records become pop music. I mean... I, like you said, I was born in 1959. Um, I thought of pop music virtually my whole life as records. And it was very hard for me. I think the hardest thing writing this book was to realize that really before the 1960s, uh, certainly before the late 50s, pop music, people thought of pop music as what they saw live, what they heard on live radio shows, what they saw on live television, and records were just what they could hear at home when they wanted to. Records weren't what pop music was. And, you know, by the time I was in high school, it was the disco era, and an awful lot of pop music didn't exist in any other way except records. I mean, it was being made by groups that simply didn't exist outside the studio. And the Beatles, of course, were the first superstar group ever to not exist outside the studio. All of this has also had a dampening effect on how many of us can actually make music anymore. I mean, you talk about uh, in the book about uh, uh, how earlier people who were into music really encouraged everybody to participate by playing instruments, by singing, and that's sort of not happening anymore to some extent, I think, because we uh, are used to listening to music that we could done by people we think are are great and superior to anything we can do uh, sure. and we listen on our own you know with the with our headphones or listening in our rooms and, and so forth uh singing along is not uh which makes me want to ask you do you think karaoke has a new role to play in all of this um <laughs> well not so new anymore but no. I, I must admit that the people who hate karaoke i'm a little puzzled by um yeah. i mean it's not my favorite thing on earth as a listener, but that's not what it's about. I, yeah, I, I don't see why, if you love music, it's worse um, to go down to a bar and sing yourself than to go down to a bar and listen to somebody else sing, even if you're not very good at it. I, I don't. I mean, I know a lot of musicians will hate me for saying this, but I, I think it's sort of a nice idea. Yeah. Another topic in the book that comes up is that uh, singers have always, uh, and, and musical groups, have, have changed their styles to accommodate their audiences. Um, uh, Sinatra, Elvis, the Beatles, you talk about all of them and how, and how they made shifts as they, as they went on with their careers so that they could keep their audience. Uh, but, 
Sure, and I would say the Beatles less than some of those other groups, um, partly just because they did become a group that never had to see its audience live. So I, I think they had that option in a way other groups had not had. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, one of the big differences to me of that that transformation we were just talking about of the recording is that before records came in, everybody had to learn all the hits. I mean, any working band, you know, if you were Louis Armstrong, you had to know the current Paul Whiteman hits and to some extent vice versa because people came out to dance and they wanted to hear all the latest hits. And really, when it switched over to people going out to dance to records, it meant that no musicians ever again have ha will have to have the level of versatility that pretty much any working musician had to have through the 1950s. And they certainly showed they could uh, achieve the, you know, greatness in all of those different forms that they tried. Um, the name of the book again is uh, "How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll." It's uh, a sumptuous collection of material on all kinds of music, ragtime, jazz, big band, swing, jive, ballads, rock and roll, uh, meticulous detail, and lots of interesting stories. And uh, you can probably find it in any good local bookstore. The publisher is Oxford University Press. Uh, I guess there's no point in asking you if you're appearing around and about since you're headed across country. Yeah, I'm afraid I'm not. I guess the one thing I would mention is that I do have a website, ElijahWalt.com, which also has links to a lot of the music I talk about. Yeah, okay. That's that's good to know. Um, I'm, I'm going to read um, the last paragraph of the, the book here. Um, when the Beatles appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show, it was the last time a live performance changed the course of American music. And when they became purely a recording group, they pointed the way toward a future in which there need be no unifying styles, as bands can play what they like in the privacy of the studio, and we can choose which to listen to in the privacy of our clubs, our homes, or finally our heads. Whether that was liberating or limiting is a matter of opinion and perception, but the whole idea of popular music had changed and uh, changed forever. And um, I, I certainly can understand that that that, that has happened. Uh, it's hard to sort of get a grip on it until you step back and look at it, and that's what this book does. Uh, you know, to to see that uh, those changes made by technology. Um, and by uh, different styles of music and so forth and how they all get together. Uh, it takes an historian to bring these things out, Elijah, and I'm delighted that you've uh, taken the time and the trouble to uh, to do this. Three years of hard work, and uh, and finally a book is produced. Uh, congratulations, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Um, so um, you are headed across country uh, to the East Coast. Yeah, for the moment, and then the, since the book is from Oxford, it's going to come out in Europe as well, so I'm going to go over there. And do you have any uh, any big plans or, or not at this point? Um, first of all, I'd like to just get into playing some more music, and then I have, I mean, I always have book projects that interest me. Um, yeah. You know, it's it, it's interesting. This book has, in a way, drained me, but it also has made me excited in pursuing a whole lot of other things. I mean, I feel like there are two different reasons to write a book. One is because you know everything and want to tell the world, and the other is because you just know nothing about something and want to force yourself to really learn, and this was very much the second kind of book. And by the time I finished it, there were just so many things that fascinated me and that I wanted to pursue more. Yeah. 
Well, Elijah Wald, uh, wh- where is your family now? Um, well, my mom is, is on the East Coast. She's in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My sister is out in your territory. She's over in San Francisco. And, uh, and your Uncle Alex is down in L.A. now. Uh, no, my Uncle Alex is up there. Oh, I see. I thought you, you just helped him move. No, I, but I it came wasn't up to, to help him move, but just from his apartment into another apartment, still in Oakland. No, no, no. He's staying in Oakland. I hope Alex is well. I haven't seen him in years. He's very well. Oh, good, good. And yeah, he was actually very pleased to hear that I was doing your show. Well, it's nice to hear. <clears throat> well, I hope you'll tell him hello the next time you. Of course. With him. Um, well, I think that's about all the questions I have. Is there anything else you'd like to say about uh, about your book? I guess the one thing I would add, because it's one of the things that people find, seem to find very interesting and that certainly I found fascinating, was simply the extent to which um, the history of popular music turns out to be about what women and girls want to listen to. I had never really thought about it. I mean, you hear these cliches about men always write the history, but I'd never really got my head around the extent to which um, women decide what people go dancing to. And pop music is just defined by what women like. And that, I think, is one of the big themes, ended up being one of the big themes of the book and is something that really, for me, completely transformed my view of quite, not just what was happening, but why the written history was so different than what happened. Yeah. Elijah Walt, thank you so much for joining us uh, here on the radio this afternoon. <clears throat> and uh, I'll bet there's another book coming down the pike, and I hope I get to talk to you about it. Okay, I look forward to it. Thanks a lot for having me. Have a good trip, and we're going to go out on the Beatles. Bye-bye. Bye.
with that, I'll just remind you that that book was titled How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll, an Alternative History of American Popular Music. The author, Elijah Wald, published by Oxford University Press. Tune in cover to cover tomorrow at 3 o'clock for Mind Over Media with Jennifer Stone. Next Monday at 3, my guest will be artist and writer Tom Killian, and we'll talk about the new book he's done with writer and poet Gary Snyder titled Tamalpais Walking, Poetry, History, and Prince, just out from Heyday Press. Both uh, Killian and Snyder have spent a lot of time around the mountain, and the book captures both the history of the trails and the spirit of this monumental place. Tom Killian, next Monday at 3. Stay tuned now for the Free Speech Radio News at 3.30, followed at 4 by Hard Knock Radio. I'm your Monday cover-to-cover host, Denny Smithson. Thanks for listening today, and please, if you can, make the time this week to read or listen to a good book. Many thanks to everyone who supported KPFA in our spring 2009 fund drive. All donors will be receiving a thank you letter from KPFA, which includes important information about your donation. On the slip with your address printed on it, you'll find the amount of your donation and the thank you gift you requested. Please contact us if your name, address, or the thank you gift listed are not correct. The sooner you request a correction, the easier it will be for us to accommodate your wishes. The enclosed letter lists email addresses and phone numbers at which you can reach us. 